This is The Guardian. Today, are Rishi Sunak's controversial plans to max out fossil fuels playing with fire? Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. There was never a lot about the Prime Minister's background as a mega wealthy, tech friendly corporate boffin that screamed an interest in the climate crisis. In his time as Chancellor, Sunak seemed relatively neutral. But as Prime Minister, there's been a complete change of tone. Before Rishi Sunak became Prime Minister, there was some hope from environmentalists that he was going to shift back towards the green agenda after a turbulent few weeks with Liz Truss. But in the last couple of weeks, all of that has been completely junked. And the trigger for that, as we all know now, was the Uxbridge by-election. Holding that seat in one of London's outer boroughs, the one formerly held by Boris Johnson, has turbocharged Sunak's anti-green agenda. Keeping green policies in the headlines, perhaps in order to win blue votes. Sensing driver frustration, the Prime Minister is now reviewing the need for low-traffic neighbourhoods. Voters were furious about ULES, London's ultra-low emissions charge, which will force the most polluting motorists to pay £12.50 a day to drive their cars in the city. But what might have seemed a fringe by-election issue, has now become a driving force for the Tories. So since then, we've had just a string of policy announcements and photo ops, which all point in the same direction. We've had Rishi Sunak telling people that he's going to max out on North Sea oil and gas. We've had him saying he was going to announce 100 new licences for people to get oil and gas out of the seabed in the North Sea. It all seems totally out of step with Britain's commitments to hit net zero. And even on radio talk shows loved by London cabbies, Sunak faced tricky questions. Antonio Guterres, you know who, that's of course the United Nations General Secretary, says, and I quote, the two truly dangerous radicals are the countries that are increasing the production of fossil fuels. That makes you a dangerous radical. No, because we're reducing our reliance over time on fossil but fuels. But you're increasing as we're, the production. At, at, at home. Critics say the Conservatives are turning the environment into the next culture war. But could it work? From The Guardian, I'm Noshin Iqbal. Today in Focus, Rishi Sunak's anti-green gamble. Kieran Stacey, you're one of The Guardian's political correspondents based in Westminster. And over the last decade, we've seen the Conservative Party become more environmentally conscious, or, you know, at least appearing greener than they were before David Cameron came in. Looking back at Rishi Sunak's time as Chancellor and since as Prime Minister, how green would you say he is? Before he became Prime Minister, we didn't really have much of an indication. 
we only had a few data points to go on. His voting record in Parliament is very anti-green. He has generally voted against green measures. He only went to COP27 at the last minute when he thought that Boris Johnson might outdo him by appearing there. He cut taxes on aviation fuel just before COP. All of these pointed in the direction of this was not a prime minister who was going to put it top of his agenda. In this contest so far, we haven't had, as it were, a clear, straight, honest leadership from, from any of you about the, the climate emergency that we faced. Yeah, so I, of course, I, I believe in climate change. I believe in our target as prime minister. I will continue to deliver on the agenda that we've set out. It's one of the things that we've displayed. Well, he didn't exactly get off to a promising start, did he? Because I remember just wincing when I was watching those Tory leadership debates. And, you know, he was asked about his environmental record. And Rishi Sunak's response was that his daughters are in charge of his household recycling. And that is the thing that in our house we are obsessive about. I know it's a pain, you need lots of bins, but it is something that is very good for the environment. And I think the third thing I would say... And since becoming Prime Minister, I wonder, Kieran, has there been any indication that he has at least developed his understanding on the urgency of the climate crisis? Well, since becoming PM, one of the main things he's done is brought back a home insulation package. So we do now have subsidies for home insulation. Apart from that, there's not a lot of policy that actually has been announced. Almost the main thing we've had in London, you know, extending ULES, which he has campaigned very rigorously against. There are a bunch of policies in place that date back to some of his predecessors. So that is, for example, the 2030 target for uh, no longer selling petrol cars, things like a deadline for landlords no longer to use gas boilers. All these policies have been in place for a little while. So... Rishi Sunak has inherited a bunch of policies that will get us to net zero by a certain date. Now I think he's working out which ones he can unravel without actually managing to break the law. But actually his second part of the answer, what he went on to say, I think gives us a better indication of his real views, which is he'd started to talk about innovation. We've got to focus on innovation because we're going to solve this problem if we doing the amazing British thing that we always do, our researchers, inventors, companies, creating the solutions to the problems of the 21st century. And, you know, Rishi Sunak comes from this tech mindset uh, where innovation can cure a lot of social ills. And I suspect that is what he really thinks in his heart about net zero and the green agenda, that the real answer to climate change comes through technology and innovation. And the problem with that belief is it sometimes blinds you to the harder things that you actually do need to do as well. Now, it is still a legal commitment. This government still has a legal commitment to hit net zero by 2050. And nothing Rishi Sunak has done has broken that legal commitment, or at least we don't know that it has, hasn't quite been tested in court. So to that extent, the UK is still on that pathway of getting towards net zero by the middle of the century. That is a really, really major thing. But as we've said, a lot has changed in the last couple of weeks. So it is fair to say, Kieran, that Sunak hasn't really in any way proven himself to be that interested in the environment. It doesn't figure in any of his key five pledges. And then, you know, of course, we have these three by-elections in which the Tories heavily lost in two seats and just about cling on to Boris Johnson's Uxbridge constituency. How did Rishi Sunak interpret that result? I would say he took two lessons from it. One is the Tories can win votes by looking to be on the side of the motorist and setting that up as a dividing line against environmentalism. And the second is the more general point that wedge issues can work for him. 
Steve's victory shows that when people are confronted with a real choice, a choice on a matter of substance as they had here, they vote Conservative. That's what the general election is going to be about. It's going to be about actual issues that make a difference to people. And that's what we so if he finds the right issue in the right place, he puts Labour on the wrong side of that debate, he might just be able to win a bunch of seats we think he's not likely to win at the next election. I think rather than telling us what his real views are on the environment and climate, I think it tells us that he was relatively neutral on the issue before and now sees it as a vote winner. And given that calculus, he's willing to row back on a lot of other stuff to pursue it at all costs. And we are now getting to the stage, I think, where maybe a year out from an election, the Tories are starting to think the national poll lead is not narrowing. We really are going to have to hammer Labour on a couple of issues. We're going to have to fight dirty, as some of them have been saying in the last couple of weeks. And meanwhile, Southern Europe was burning with wildfires forcing the evacuation of British holidaymakers back home. You know, it's been the hottest July on record around the world. For many people, all this might really hammer home the climate crisis. So what did the PM do next? Well, he got on his private jet. He flew to Aberdeen. Finally, before you go, how are you getting up here to make this green announcement today? Private jet? Uh, I'll be flying as I, as I normally would, and that is the most efficient use of my time. And he announced 100 new oil and gas licences in the North Sea. Well, it's great to be in Scotland to strengthen our energy security with more licences for the North Sea. Now, when it comes to our energy security, we are still going to need oil and gas. 25%. Which is quite the action to take, I think. But it tells you one thing. The Tories think that their anti-environmentalist position is a vote winner, especially up in Scotland. But it certainly was an interesting contrast with the views coming from the south of Europe on that exact day. And what's the response to it been like? Well, it does put Labour in a slightly difficult position. Uh, Keir Starmer has stuck to his position of saying there will be no new licences for oil and gas extraction in the North Sea. But as we've seen, that is not necessarily a popular view among all parts of the Labour Party and its affiliated unions. It's interesting, actually, that in the last few days, the person who's really gone out and fought Rishi Sunak on this has not been Keir Starmer, it's been Ed Miliband. In a way, that's no surprise. Ed Miliband is the carrier of the green torch, if that's not a terribly mangled metaphor. But he is the guy who who believes this, I think, within the Parliamentary Labour Party, on the front bench at least, uh, more than anybody else. Unsurprisingly, the response from environmental groups has been complete outrage. The North Sea has been a declining oil basin for years. We have, as a country, been shifting towards renewable forms of energy. We have fantastic resources in terms of the amount of wind, especially, that uh, blows up in Scotland. And so there are other ways that we could use this money and incentivize private companies to use this money. But there are companies out there still willing to drill oil and gas, still think that there is a profit to be made. And, and that is what Rishi Sunak has decided to throw his lot in with. What do these licences actually mean economically for our energy security and energy prices? Not a lot. <laughs> right, OK. Uh, honestly, the North Sea is a declining oil basin. It, does, it is not the economic powerhouse that it was back in you know, the 70s and 80s, where it really powered our economic growth. Um, a lot of the economic activity in the North Sea is actually from decommissioning. That's a huge industry now. The amount of extra oil this will add to global reserves is absolutely marginal. This will not make a dent in the global oil price, 
Nor, by the way, will it particularly change the dial on UK energy security. This oil is not going to us. This is not UK oil. This will just go onto the global market. It will add to capacity. So to that extent, it's more oil on the global market that's not coming from Russia. But it's not a huge amount of new hydrocarbons that's going to completely shift you know, the global oil price or the calculation in Ukraine, for example. But also we're speeding us on our path to net zero with carbon capture and storage. Two new clusters announced today, including here in Aberdeenshire. That's going to be fantastic. This is a new technology that Britain can lead the world in. And that's going to be happening right here, which I'm incredibly excited about. And meanwhile, I guess, alongside announcing the licenses, he's also thrown a bone to his belief in innovation, saving the environment and announced the carbon capture programme. Can you tell us a bit more about that? I was an energy correspondent for a different newspaper about 10 years ago. And the number of people I got telling me that carbon capture was the answer to climate change. But it was so far away. And this technology is a long way from being realized at any kind of commercial scale. It would require huge, huge subsidies from the government. I have always thought that this is the kind of scheme that gets dreamt up when you give up on trying to reduce your carbon emissions. In a way, it's a very, very simple idea. You take carbon that is emitted from a process, you isolate it from the emissions, first of all, and you basically inject it into something where it's not going to be released into the atmosphere. It's often rocks. It is an incredibly expensive process at the moment. And maybe the technology will develop to the extent that this actually becomes commercially viable. Maybe even it will develop to the extent that you could do it at scale, whereby you put almost all the emissions into rocks or the seabed or wherever. But I think that that technology is a lot further out than things that we know work right now, you know, whether it's onshore wind, solar power, you know, all these other technologies that we have that don't emit carbon on anything like the same scale. The government is still on paper committed to net zero emissions by 2050. But is that consistent with this announcement which allows all these new licences? In a way it has to be, because if it isn't, it's not just committed on paper, the government is legally obliged to hit net zero by 2050. Now that is actually a really important piece of legislation. And what it means is if projections show that these new licences will mean that we are no longer on track to hit our net zero commitments, they'll get challenged in the courts. And there is a chance that the courts could say, no, this breaks the 2008 piece of legislation that means that you have to be forecast to hit your net zero target by 2050. So Rishi Sunak has told us that it is, but don't just take his word for it. If it looks like these are actually going to break our 2050 commitment, they will get challenged in the law courts and we will hear that argument play out in real time. Kieran, some of the criticism for Sunak's plans has been coming from within his own party. Can you tell me who's been attacking him and what impact is it having on the Tory party? I think this is one of the most fascinating elements of this whole argument after Uxbridge. And this is where politics has really changed in the last 10-15 years. The element within the Tory party that is pro-environment, that is pro-net zero, is much bigger than it was 10 years ago. So when, for example, David Cameron famously reportedly said, cut the green crap, and George Osborne then rolled out a load of policies that took costs out of energy bills and backslid on various environmental commitments, that didn't cause a big issue at the time within the Tory party. But This time around, that's different. 
Zach Goldsmith, as we know, resigned over what he said was his conflict with the prime minister on climate issues. From his point of view, Rishi Sunak just didn't care about. He wasn't anti-green. It just wasn't really on his radar. There are people like Chris Skidmore, who is the net zero czar. And just as an indicator of how strongly this opinion is felt on parts of the Tory party, let me read you this tweet from Chris Skidmore. As I mentioned, he is the government's net zero czar. He said, this is the wrong decision at precisely the wrong time when the rest of the world is experiencing record heat waves. It is on the wrong side of a future economy that will be founded on renewable and clean industries, not fossil fuels. It is on the wrong side of modern voters who will vote with their feet at the next general election for parties that protect, not threaten our environment. He goes on, worryingly, this decision has been announced when MPs are on recess and unable to hold the government to account. I will be writing to the Speaker to call for an emergency debate as soon as we return. Now, usually MPs calling for emergency debates is that's a tactic you use in opposition, not when you're on the government benches. There's something now called the Conservative Environment Network, which is huge. You know, it's dozens and dozens of MPs are part of this, which is campaigning vociferously in favour of policies that will mitigate climate change. Now, we know that there are something like 100 MPs signed up to the Conservative Environment Network, which are campaigning vociferously in favour of policies that will mitigate climate change. A lot of those actually are red wall Tories. How are they going to stand up for this agenda, even if it means, for example, backing low traffic neighbourhoods or car scrappage schemes or an end to North Sea oil and gas? It may well be that they're waiting to see what happens in polling. They may want to see what the voters are going to do before they make their mind up what they really think. And what about the general public? What does polling at the moment show on where voters stand on green issues? Voters believe in climate change. They believe it is man-made. They believe that net zero is an important commitment. And they think that policies should be rolled out to bring net zero about. What they don't like so much are things that affect themselves. So they're very happy to see companies taxed or regulated Uh, in ways that boost the environment. They're very happy to see subsidies for green technology. They don't like being told they can't use their cars. They don't like being told that they need to pay more for their air tickets. They don't like being told, as an extreme example, that they shouldn't have as many children as they Mm. might want to have. And how does it break down demographically when we're looking at voters uh, being polled in cities versus in rural areas, you know, the young versus the old? To a certain extent, in the way that you would expect... Younger voters tend to be more concerned about the environment and more willing to stomach policies that will affect them to uh, make it better. Older voters, less so. But let me give you one piece of polling that really stood out to me this week, which suggests that maybe Rishi Sunak is onto something. When you poll people to ask them whether they think it was right to issue 100 new oil and gas licenses for the North Sea, decisively they say, yes, it was right. That is true of... Uh, higher income and lower income voters. That is true of Labour and Conservative voters. The only group almost who that, whom that is not true for are very young voters. I think it's something like 16 to 19. Even 19 to 25 year olds think this was the right thing to do. Right. So whether that is because it sounds like a good thing, giving licenses to companies to do things or whether that is a suggestion that some of voters' green priorities don't go as deep as you might expect. I think, you know, we'll, we'll have to see whether there is now any shift in the polls. So do you think Sunak is gambling on the fact that when polled, when asked the questions about environmental credentials, people often present their nicest selves, let's say, to the pollsters? 
And then secretly, when it comes to the ballot box, they vote another way. I think that that was certainly true in Uxbridge. The question is, Uxbridge is a a fairly unique example in a way because it was one of a handful of seats where a policy is coming in that will have a direct impact on the voters in that constituency, where it will charge them where they weren't charged before. Usually, green policies aren't as direct as that. They're not as stark as that. It was a live issue as well, right? I mean, if this was in six months' time, the result might have been right, different. Right, right. We're, we're weeks out from this actually coming in. So it, you know, timing-wise, that worked as well. Coming up. Is the climate crisis being used as the next battle in the culture war? Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus. Kieran, there have been some wild exchanges lobbed back and forth in the last week. The Conservatives are clearly trying to paint Labour as being totally out of step with what the public want. Rishi Sunak even tweeted that Labour's energy policy might as well have been written by Just Stop Oil. Is this an attempt to turn the environment into the next culture war? For sure. As I mentioned before, the Conservatives are now looking for wedge issues where they can put Labour on one side of the argument, them on the other side of the argument, and campaign very heavily on that. These are often issues which aren't part of the mainstream political conversation, which aren't high on a lot of voters' agendas, but when you start tapping into them, can really trigger people, for want of a better word. Protesters in central London. And now Sadiq Khan is coming along and saying, we're going to bang you with £12.50 a day. If you can't get a new car, you're basically screwed. 
So Rishi Sunak clearly thinks the car owner is the voter that he wants to get. And that's not a bad idea because the voters they're losing are suburban ones. So what he wants to do is say to your suburban driver, don't worry, I've got your back. So how else is he getting this message across? So this week we had a uh, photo opportunity where Rishi Sunak posed in Margaret Thatcher's famous old rover uh, and declared himself to be on the side of motorists. And this was a stunt really designed to once again bring ULEZ and the extension of ULEZ to the forefront of the political agenda. The ironic thing, of course, is we all remember the last photo we saw of Rishi Sunak with a car. He was filling up a car that wasn't his own. Yeah. I don't know. I, I just certainly don't know the last time I saw him driving. He is usually driven around if he is in a car. Sometimes without a seatbelt. Sometimes without a seatbelt. But mostly, of course, he doesn't go in a car. He goes in a helicopter or a private jet. So putting himself on the side of motorists and posing in an old car is kind of ironic for a prime minister who much prefers to be in the air than on the ground. So where have Labour stood in comparison? For a long time, this has been the one policy area that Keir Starmer has really gone out on a limb on. So, of course, we had the announcement that there would be a £28 billion climate prosperity fund, if Labour were to get in, which would be funded by borrowing. We won't make the mistake the Tories made with North Sea oil and gas back in the 1980s, when they frittered away the wealth from our national resources. So we will set up great British energy within the first year of a Labour government. A new company. Everything else they've said will be fully costed. We're already seeing the slight signs of, not a reversal of that policy, but tempering it slightly. So now Rachel Reeves says, well, it wouldn't be 28 billion in the first year. It would be ramping up to 28 billion, so we would hit the 28 billion later on in the parliament. So we are starting to see signs of, I think, nervousness, that Labour has quite a bold green agenda. One of the policies, as we've discussed already, is that they have said no new oil and gas in the North Sea. At the time it was announced, I think that that seemed like quite a sensible electoral play. The North Sea is no longer the great powerhouse that it was. There aren't so many hydrocarbons trapped in the North Sea oil bed. But now that Scotland is in much more in play politically than it was before, now that the cost of living has risen right up to the top of people's agenda and energy security has risen up the political agenda. That is looking like a policy that slightly puts Labour in a vulnerable position. So let's see. I mean, Ed Miliband has made a variety of promises that really put Labour on unique territory. It's one of the rare areas where they are on completely different territory to the Tories. Let's see if they stick with it. Well, that's the thing. Do you think that in the run up to the next election that Starmer's approach will become shaped more so by what the Tories are doing and saying, particularly if this culture war is effective? Yeah, if they start shipping votes, then absolutely Keir Starmer will start junking this. He is ruthlessly focused on winning power. I've been reading some old diaries from Labour in 1996. And at that time, Tony Blair's mantra for that final year leading up to the 1997 election was reassurance, reassurance, reassurance. Keir Starmer is learning from that. And if there is anything that he is doing that doesn't seem reassuring to voters, he will junk it very quickly. But that result in Uxbridge demonstrates there is never any reason to be complacent. And we are doing something very wrong if policies put forward by the Labour Party end up on each and every Tory leaflet. So let's see what happens with the Green Agenda. Kieran, 
a lot of the policy announcements in recent days have echoed a common concern, which is wanting to meet the UK's net zero obligations, but without costing the taxpayer. There are some within your party who say things like, you know, bringing in new boiler schemes, that kind of thing should go. Again, are you prepared to stand up to those in your party who feel that actually the net zero agenda has gone too far? Well, actually, I'm I'm standing up for the British people because I'm also cognizant that we're living through a time at the moment where inflation is high. So, yes, we're going to make progress towards net zero, but we're going to do that in a proportionate and pragmatic way that doesn't unnecessarily give people... Is that a fair concern? And... Can these policies be implemented without costing the public more money? I think you have to separate out the short term and the long term. In the short term, it is pretty impossible to do these things without costing money. Someone's got to pay for that investment. The argument by those who support this kind of action is that in the long term, it's cheaper because we're starting to see now in Southern Europe what the long term consequences are of not securing you know, your green climate agenda. We are also seeing what the long-term consequences are of not doing things like home insulation. So when George Osborne took costs off energy bill payers' bills by retreating on some of those home insulation subsidies, that meant that suddenly, overnight, home insulation in the UK almost ground to a halt. If our homes were better insulated now, we might have found the last year much easier Mm. to go through than we have so you a lot of this is about putting in things that over the long term will pay off but that's very difficult in our five-year electoral cycles and where does all this leave rishi sunak i mean how much do you think he's using this insistence that you know he must keep inflation down as kind of an excuse to do away with what the tories famously called the green crap and could it work will people buy this at the next general election I don't think that Rishi Sunak particularly himself wants to cut the green crap. I don't think this is where it's coming from. I think he wants to win the next election. And I think he wants to find issues where he might be able to put Labour on the other side of an argument that he thinks he can win. And there aren't many issues he can do that on. Labour have been extremely cautious, extremely smallsy conservative about what they have promised to do. So it has been very difficult for the Prime Minister to find things that he can go after them with. It's been really interesting to me the number of times ULIS has come up in Prime Minister's questions. Now, this is a London-only issue. In fact, this mm. is a London suburbs-only issue. Why is Tory MP after Tory MP bringing it up? This was before Uxbridge, by the way. That tells me there just aren't that many things that the Tories think that they can bash Labour over the head with. This is one of them. I think it's kind of a Hail Mary pass. The country does believe in climate change, does believe that humans cause it, and I think is willing to make some sacrifices for it. What Rishi Sunak is going to test now is how far they're willing to go. Kieran, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Kieran Stacey, The Guardian's political correspondent. To read more on this story and keep up with coverage from our UK politics team, do head over to theguardian.com forward slash politics. And to hear more on this story, you can listen to John Harris in conversation with Zach Goldsmith and Pippa Carrera on Politics Weekly UK. Find that wherever you get this podcast. And that's it for today. I'm Nasheen, and this episode was produced by Tom Glasser, sound designed by Rudy Zagadlo, and the executive producer was Phil Maynard. We're back again tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Tired. 
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax with their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs. You can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit makes these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the super light tree runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the super light tree runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a super light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.